According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Once again, we're here for the purpose of growth. As always, join me, if you would, in uh, John chapter 11. Our first uh, shot at John chapter 11. We wrapped up the material last week in uh, the Gospel of Luke. We'll be returning back to... um, Luke here shortly. Uh, it looks like we've got episode 26 and episode 27 that both come out of John 11. And then we return back to Luke 17 in uh, for episode number 28. If I have the uh, situation here correct. So we'll be returning back to Luke 17 when we get to uh, verses 11 and then verses 12 and following where he heals the ten lepers. So, okay. All right. Further along than I thought we were. We were uh, at our prayer time this morning. We were observing the fact that two other doctrinal pastors in the country right now have a Life of Christ series that's going on. And so it's kind of interesting. Mark Perkins is one of those up in uh, uh, Denver, Colorado. And and uh, anyway, so they were teasing me about finding out where I get my study material. That <laughs> I don't have to study anymore. I just have to find out which pastors are doing Life of Christ and which pastors are doing Second Corinthians. And I uh, found out Pastor Jeremy Thomas over in Fredericksburg, he's doing the Minor Prophets. So, you know, I can get my Joel notes over there, my Hosea notes. No, I couldn't do that. John chapter 11, a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was the Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. So the sister sent word to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. Uh, That's all they say. They don't say, hurry up, get here, heal him, keep him from dying. They say, he whom you love is sick. And... uh, and then they blame him for not getting there quick enough. And we'll talk about that here as well. Got a, a full day ahead of us and a lot of detail that we've got to study here out of this chapter. Before we begin, though, let's take a moment for silent prayer so that we're not out of fellowship, we're not distracted, we're not defiling his courts. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day and for the truth of your word. And we uh, ask, Father, for your hand a blessing upon our study, that you would set aside distractions, give us concentration. And Father, uh, clarity of thought, clarity of voice as we uh, proceed into your plan for our lives on this day. We thank you for the uh, lesson here in John 11, for the resurrection of Lazarus, not simply for the the miracle itself, for his sake, Father, but the doctrine that gets taught here and the, the wonderful messages, the I am the resurrection and the life, the great encouragement that we have. And uh, Father, I just pray that as you minister your word to your children today, that the blessings would be abundant. I thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All righty. Resurrection of Lazarus should be technically the resuscitation of Lazarus. But as I said, I'm adapting somebody else's harmony of the Gospels and I I'm kind of stuck with the titles they came up with. When I create my own Harmony of the Gospels, I'll be more free to uh, title them whatever I want to title them. Uh, The resurrection of Lazarus. The difference between a resurrection and a resuscitation is pretty simple. Uh, Resurrection is when you are raised again from a mortal life to an immortal life. Uh, It was described in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Your mortal body goes into the ground in dishonor and your immortal body is raised up in honor and glory for all eternity. The resurrection body uh, has no more sickness, no more pain, no more sorrow and all the rest. That's a resurrection. And uh, Jesus is the first of the resurrection, the firstborn from the dead, the firstborn or the first of the resurrection. Anybody else prior to Christ and then the other miracles after Christ in the book of Acts, we're going to see them all in this study. Um, all, at least we'll see all uh, the ones prior to Christ and then we'll glimpse one or two of them after. Um, they're technically the resuscitations. They're not resurrections. Uh, they are resuscitated back to their mortal 
life. So Lazarus comes out of the ground here after four days in the tomb. And uh, he's still, of course, wrapped up in like a mummy in his wrappings and whatever. And he comes out and he is once again restored to physical life of mortality. So that means he's subject to death once again, you know, at, at a later point when he gets older and whatnot, when uh, the rest of his life runs the rest of its course. So the, the young fellow that Elijah rose from the dead in the Old Testament or the two that came back to life uh, in Elisha's ministry, for example, and all three that Jesus brought back to life, the widow's son at Nain, uh, the Jairus' daughter, the, the synagogue official's daughter, and Lazarus, the three here that we that were told about. Um, and there were likely more. Um, there's a reference in Hebrews 11 that women received back their dead. And uh, it seems to be a plural situation there more than just the three Old Testament examples we know about. Uh, But whatever the case, anyone that was miraculously raised uh, for an earthly testimony and miracle uh, was raised, was resuscitated. And I prefer the term resuscitation that establishes they're still in their mortal bodies. They're going to live out the rest of an earthly life and then die a second time uh, to go to heaven. That's the difference. And uh, we'll, we'll unfold some of that here as we go through these examples. All right, let's start with Lazarus. Who is this Lazarus guy? Uh, not too long ago when we were dealing with uh, the rich man and Lazarus. And Lazarus, the rich man died and went to hell. And, the, and Lazarus died and went to Abraham's bosom. And he was comforted and he was encouraged there. Lazarus, the, uh, the leper who uh, hung outside of uh, the rich man's house. Not the same Lazarus. All right. First of all, Lazarus. Let me give you the vocabulary on Lazarus. I didn't do this with Lazarus and uh, the rich man. Lazarus, of course, is an English name. It comes from the Latin, same spelling, L-A-Z-A-R-U-S. Lazarus is the Latin for the Greek, Lazarus, L-A-Z-A-R-O-S. I didn't uh, transliterate it, but you have Lazarus right over here. Um, I could remember to do my better pen. So you got lambda, that's L-A-Z-A-R-O-S. A lot of the Greek endings are O-S endings, like logos. Uh, O-S is your masculine nominative ending for a basic noun in Greek. In English, it's U-S. Uh, most of your masculine uh, nominative nouns are U-S in, in Latin. So a lot of your os words become uses, and uh, that's what we have here. Lazarus becomes Lazarus from uh, Greek into Latin, and we bring it across from Latin into English as the proper name, Lazarus. How do I clear this? Boom. Okay. Uh, Lazarus, though, is not a Greek name. Lazarus uh, is, a trans, is a transliteration from the Aramaic. The Aramaic is Lazar. L-A, uh, again, I did not transliterate, I should have. L-A-Z-A-R or L-A apostrophe Z-A-R. If you want to uh, apostrophize the lion letter there, uh, La Rosa and uh, Dan be able to spot that pretty well right up in here. Uh, Lazar. L-A apostrophe A-Z-A-R, Lazar. And this is the Aramaic form. It's uh, actually an abbreviation. It's a nickname. Uh, Lazar is a shortened form of Eleazar, which is very well known from the Hebrew Old Testament. Uh, The son of Aaron, for example, the high priest after Aaron was Eleazar. The two sons are Eleazar and Ithamar that uh, survived and and, uh, followed after Aaron. Eleazar, El-Lazar, el uh, for God or Elohim, and then Lazar is the verb to help, like Ezra the scribe means help, or uh, Eleazar means God helps, uh, Elohim helps, and um, as I mentioned, very common name uh, in the uh, in the Hebrew Old Testament. So anyway, all of this is to say Lazarus is a uh, comes from uh, Lazar, which uh, if you ever if you're a big fiddler on the roof fan. Uh, Laser Wolf, you know, that's the that's the Jewish fellow there that Seidel was espoused to. Uh, Laser, that's uh, this name, Lazarus. If you want to give him an English name instead of his Hebrew-Russian name, then you can call him Lazarus rather than Laser. All right. There are uh, two of them in Scripture. Get off my pen here. Go back to my arrow. Lazarus of Bethany. That's this one we're looking at here. Lazarus of Bethany. 
This uh, distinguishes him from the poor leper who died and stayed dead back in uh, Luke chapter 16. All right. Uh, that was uh, a different Lazarus, very common name, as you might expect. There were several Eleazars in the Old Testament, and uh, Lazarus was a fairly common name of this era. Uh, and so there's no reason to identify the two. In fact, you have a hard time. There have been attempts trying to uh, identify the two, trying to say that you know the uh, Lazarus, this Lazarus was in the ground for four days, came back out to life. And the story of what happened to him while he was in the ground for those four days is what Luke was recording, you know, where he was in Abraham's bosom being comforted. He was across the gulf from uh, the rich man and so forth. Uh, those attempts are weak, and there's no basis to try to do that. In fact, I think there's plenty of evidence that you can't do that. Uh, the rich man wanted the, the leper, Lazarus, to, uh, to go back to earth and, and, and report to his brothers. And uh, Abraham, I thought, made it pretty clear that Lazarus isn't going back, uh, that even if someone does come back from the dead, that they weren't going to believe the, the message that uh, the rich man's brothers needed to uh, needed to listen to Moses and, and get Bible doctrine to answer their issues. Um, something else, too, we're going to see a future passage. If you just hold your finger there, glance on down to, um, oh, let's see, where is it here? Uh, I may not find it right off the bat. There's a story in the very next chapter, in John chapter 12. But you don't have the name there. You've got Mary and Martha and Lazarus here at this Passover dinner, or or this dinner six days before Passover. And this is where uh, Mary wipes the Lord's feet, and uh, Judas complains about it because he wanted to pilfer the the perfume and, and pawn it. Yeah, there's a, there's a reference there, but the um, rather than uh, John 12, where you're going to find it is the Matthew parallel and the Mark parallel. Uh, there's a, there's another home. Simon the leper is uh, the one that's actually hosting this dinner. See, Lazarus, the dead guy, uh, not dead anymore, is also present, but it was actually hosted in the home of Simon, the used to be a leper, no longer a leper. Okay, and so if Lazarus, what I'm trying to say is, if Lazarus, the used to be dead uh, guy, is the same as Lazarus used to be a leper guy, uh, that would be explained in the Matthew text, and it's not. So uh, just hold your thought there, and if I just confused you, don't worry about it. We'll come back to that here shortly and uh, highlight that. The point being, I'm trying to tell you is that these are two different Lazari, all right? Two different Lazari, Lazarus the leper and Lazarus. Of Bethany, um, and, I, and anyone that tries to combine them into one and the same Lazarus is going to have their work cut out for them, and I'm still not going to believe them, no matter uh, how they try to mash them together. The poor leper who died and stayed dead in Luke 16 is pre-in ministry episode number 24. So it was just two episodes ago in our Life of Christ uh, series, and you can go get those messages pretty quickly off the website. There's another reference here to Lazarus. And this one actually takes more work than the uh, identification with uh, the leper that went to Abraham's bosom uh, because of the expression, the one whom you love, the disciple whom Jesus loved. And that is here in this text. uh, And we'll evaluate it, uh, particularly because there's a lot of back and forth between phileo love and agape love in this chapter and in later chapters and references to the Apostle John. But he's called the one whom you love. Sister sent word to him saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. Literally, Han Philae, the one whom you phileo, the one that you have phileo, rapport, fellowship, friendship, love with, is sick. And so he is referenced here as the object of Jesus Christ's love. And um, likewise, in verse 11 here, um, he's called a friend, our friend, our philos. Lazarus has fallen asleep. So he's a philos. He's a lover. He's a friend. All right. He is a uh, recipient or an object of your reciprocal mutual uh, fellowship, rapport, uh, phileo love, or a friend there in verse 11. Uh, likewise, down in verse uh, 36, when the crowds are all, uh, or 34, I guess, 
No, 36. Yeah, Jesus is weeping in verse 35. And so the Jews, oh, isn't that sweet? The Jews were saying, see how he loved him. All right, because Jesus is weeping, completely missing the point. Jesus was not weeping for Lazarus. He was weeping for them. <laughs> and we're going to spotlight that here. Um, their uh, uh, approach to miracles and their approach to life and death, their approach to ministry is uh, what truly made Jesus sad. The, the, starting with Mar- Martha, and then with Mary, and then with the crowd, I think uh, is when it became overwhelming. And Jesus started weeping there in verse 35. But the Jews were saying, see how he loved him. So this opens up a question then to consider and to compare. Uh, church tradition all through the centuries has always locked in the authorship of this gospel. We call this the gospel of John. Why do we call this the gospel of John? There's nothing in chapter 1 or nothing in chapter 21 or nothing in the chapters in between that says this book was written by John, the younger brother of James, the son of Zebedee, son of thunder, disciple whom Jesus loved, a young teenage kid that reclined on Jesus' breast. Okay, Um, We don't have verses that spell that out, but we come to that conclusion after a lot of detective work, after a lot of detail and a lot of study and a lot of piecing things together with the recognition that the author of this gospel was very careful to never refer to himself in the first person. And when he had to record episodes that involved himself as an eyewitness, uh, he did so in the third person. He would consistently call himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. And so um, it is a matter of consideration. If if, uh, this book is written by the disciple whom Jesus loved, and if Mary and Martha make the statement here in this chapter to Jesus, the disciple whom you love, or the one whom you love, is sick, well, then you have to look at it. You'd be criminal not to look at it. You have to look at it and say, now, is this identifying the author? Is, is, should we rename the Gospel of John the Gospel of Lazarus? All right. Is the Gospel of Lazarus? Is Lazarus one of the uh, apostles? See, now, I'm, I'm rejecting that as well, but it, it at least is worth study and consideration. And it actually takes more work than the other one. Because uh, if you're going to compare your Lazari, then you've got... John 11 and 12 to compare with Luke 16, and you're done. It's really quick. Uh, if you're going to compare Lazarus with John, then you've got a lot more work to do. Uh, the Apostle John and those references uh, are all in this gospel, the uh, gospel of John. Um, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, by the way, have no problem talking about John, the son of thunder. Uh, they do so often. Uh, Peter, James, and John go into the Garden of Gethsemane. Peter, James, and John are doing this. And uh, Peter, James, and John go up to the Mount of Transfiguration. Uh, James and John are sons of Zebedee that leave their father in the boat. Uh, John gets a lot of uh, uh, coverage in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Okay, And he's never mentioned in, in, uh, in his own book. That's not accidental. Instead, using the expression, the apostle or the disciple whom Jesus loved, that's the pattern. And it's not found in Matthew, Mark, or Luke. It's found here in this gospel. All right, so uh, let's look at them just quickly enough. John 13. I realize I skipped a verse in John 11. That's intentional. I'll be back to that here in a moment. Uh, but John 13:23 is our first of these. Um here we have it uh, before the feast of the Passover, knowing his hour had come. They go up here to the upper room and uh, Jesus is washing the disciples feet. This is the night in which he's betrayed. And um, we see he's talking about being betrayed and the different things here. And they're not exactly liking it. And uh, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. So the disciples began looking at one another at a loss to know which one he was speaking. And there was reclining on Jesus bosom, one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. Okay? And so it's understood to be the author of this gospel record. Uh, and Jesus, or so Simon Peter, gestured to him and said to him, Tell us who it is of whom he is speaking. And so he, leaning back with us on Jesus' bosom, said to him, Lord, who is it? And this is something, too, when we describe the nature of dining rooms and the nature of eating in the Roman era of, uh, of history, the fact that they were reclining on couches as they were eating and the way that they were positioned with three couches uh, around the, the center table and serving area. And each couch had three uh, positions for bodies to lie on and, uh, and, and how they'd be positioned and where the guest of honor would be positioned and where the, uh, the, the most intimate friend would be positioned. 
see. All men, of course, women, if they were invited, would sit in a chair somewhere nearby, uh, typically right in the middle in that serving area where the men that were reclining could simply look up and see any of the women that actually were asked to speak or say something. Um, but the point being, now, uh, John, as the disciple whom Jesus loved, reclining in his breast shows that in the dining position of how they were situated on the different couches and at the different positions in the room, that John was the one that was right there on that sofa uh, next to Jesus. So that all it really took was just simply a leaning back and a, a very quiet word um, that would even be so quiet that other couches couldn't hear what he said, or even possibly the third guy on the other side of John maybe wouldn't have even heard what John had said, leaning back on Jesus' breast. And so, uh, in any event, the disciple whom Jesus loved. Uh, keep in mind, in John 11, uh, they did not use the word disciple. They did not say the disciple whom you love is sick. They said the one whom you love is sick. Your friend is sick. The one whom you follow is sick. And in here... Um, there was reclining on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus agaped, agapao, not phileo, loved. And so uh, Simon Peter gestured to him, so leaning back he said, Lord, who is it? So there's the reference there. In chapter 19, in verse 26, see, we don't have the idea that Lazarus was a disciple or that Mary and Martha were disciples. They didn't travel uh, as disciples, uh, Mary and Martha are not listed among the leading women that traveled and supported Jesus out of their private means. It appears to simply be a uh, friendship relationship between Jesus and these two sisters and their brother. John chapter 19 and verse 26. This is uh, after the um, on the cross, on the cross, standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother. And his mother's sister, um, you have to ask yourself, are there three women in this verse or are there four? Standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. Okay, And you have to decide, is that three women or is that four? Because you could read it, Mary, or his mother, and then his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, as woman number two, and then Mary Magdalene is woman number three. Does that make sense? Or you view it as four women. Mary is woman, uh, the mother. Jesus' mother is, is uh, woman number one. His mother's sister is woman number two. I believe that's the, that's the case because I believe that's John's mother, Salome. And then uh, Mary, the wife of Clopas, is woman number three in this verse. And then Mary Magdalene is the fourth in this verse and uh, three or four of them are all named Mary, <laughs> which doesn't help the uh, confusion factor at all. Uh, but if uh, his mother's sister is Salome, the uh, mother, a uh, wife of Zebedee, Mrs. Zebedee, then that makes her the mother of James and John. And that makes James and John cousins to the humanity of Jesus Christ. But when Jesus then saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, Standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. And we're very familiar with this episode. Uh, at this point, Jesus has four brothers and presumably at least two brothers-in-law. I think the sisters are married. Um, and yet, since they're not saved, he's not going to give his widowed mother to their care. He's going to give his widowed mother to her nephew and uh, trust that the beloved disciple here is going to take care of her in a biblical fashion not that of course an unbeliever can't do earthly things to meet mother's needs but a believer can do earthly things to meet mother's needs and on top of that have the divine viewpoint to fellowship in the things of the lord and to uh to uh, to minister and to do so for the glory of jesus christ and so uh, he said to the disciple behold your mother from that hour the disciple took her into his own household and again this uh, this is no names are mentioned there, but uh, the universal church tradition until uh, the liberal 19th century uh, is that this is the Apostle John, author of the Gospel, the three epistles, and the Apocalypse. Next chapter, chapter 20 and verse 2. Whoever this disciple Jesus loved is, he's considerably younger. He beats Peter in the foot race. And uh, we also know that he lives a long time. 
He uh, lives long enough to keep uh, Mary in his household and throughout all of her days. Different things that happen there. Okay. Um, Mary Magdalene reports uh, her excitement about the stone rolled away from the tomb. So she runs and comes to Simon Peter and to the other disciple. You know, why won't this guy get named? Say, if it's not the author of the gospel, it really, really opens up some puzzles as to why the author of this apostle, uh, who knows everything else seemingly about the ministry of Jesus Christ, can't seem to figure out this guy's name. Okay, either he doesn't know it, he's clueless, or he knows it, but he's very intentionally keeping it unstated. And that's the only explanation that, that actually makes any kind of sense. Uh, so Peter and the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, they've taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter and the other disciple went forth and they were going to the tomb. So he's in fact, other than the love reference here in verse two, in the, mess, in the most of the rest of these verses, he's simply the other guy, right? The other disciple, the other disciple. He's always consistently the other disciple throughout this uh, throughout this chapter. I think when you get over to the book of Acts and uh, in Luke's record there in the book of Acts, it's very clear in those early chapters that it's Peter and John are the two leading disciples. We don't know what happened to Andrew. We know James lost his head. So of, of the four that were the most closest to Christ, it was Peter and John that had the leadership in the uh, in the early church right after Pentecost. So uh, Peter and the other disciple went forth. They were going to the tomb. The two were running together, and the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter, came to the tomb first. You might expect Peter's an older man anyway. Peter's probably the same generation as Zebedee. So uh, the other disciple, John, is young enough to be his son. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings lying there, but did not go in. Very natural for John. All he has to do is stand at the edge, look in, and he's got the faith to believe. But Simon Peter, of course, he gets there late, but barges right on in. Uh, following him, entered the tomb, and he saw the linen wrappings lying there, and the face cloth, which had been his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by himself. So the other disciple, who had first come to the tomb, then also entered and uh, saw and believed. So a lot of detail in this, but it's an uh, interesting uh, narration that describes the interaction between Peter and John on that. And then finally, the final chapter here, chapter 21, verse 7 and verse 20. And it's not uh, John that Jesus has to ask, do you love me? Do you love me more than these? It's Peter that has to get asked, do you love me more than these? And it's the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, that uh, rumors start spreading about. And so um, they've gone fishing and uh, weren't catching anything until Jesus shows up and gives uh, these lifelong professional commercial fishermen the tips on uh, what they're doing wrong. And uh, But then, therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it's the Lord. When Simon Peter heard it was the Lord, he put his outer garment on, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. And uh, by the time the other disciples managed to get the boat to land, uh, Peter's already there with uh, Bible class going on, learning from the Lord. Notice, Peter doesn't doubt anything that the disciple whom Jesus loved says. If the disciple whom Jesus loved says it, it's right. It's true. He knows. He's more intimate than Peter, even though Peter's the leader of the twelve. John is the one that's most intimate, most familiar with Jesus Christ, and Peter never doubts anything that John says in, uh, in any of these passages. Then uh, after the do you love me message... Uh, and the different things here. He gives him a prophecy about how Peter's going to die. And then uh, says, follow me. And then Peter, turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who had also leaned back on his bosom at the supper. And Peter said, well, what about this man? And Jesus said, if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. In other words, it's not your business. It's not your ministry. He has his course. You have your course. Each man stands or falls before his master. Pray for him, love him, help him, but uh, he doesn't answer to you. And whatever his assignment is, is uh, not your concern. Well, that became a rumor then. This uh, saying went out among the brethren that the disciple would not die. Okay? And the author here is trying to dispel that rumor. 
writing as he is this gospel decades later. The gospel of John doesn't get written for 50 years after the life of Christ. And, uh, and John seemingly is never dying. He's just getting older and older and older and he's never dying. And of course, he was pretty young at this event anyway. And I uh, took care of Mary until she died. And then he relocated to Asia and started being the apostle over the seven churches there. And then other things started happening. He even uh, the Romans tried to put him to death. They threw him in boiling oil and, and that didn't kill him. Right. If, again, according to church traditions that uh, he just sat there in the boiling oil and they finally got tired of it. So they took him out, sent him to the Isle of Patmos. Um, so. It's not true that he's not going to die before Jesus comes. Uh, it was only a rebuke that the Lord gave to Peter. And uh, notice, this is the disciple who is testifying to these things and wrote these things. And we know that his testimony is true. Peter never doubted anything John ever told him. And none of uh, John's disciples, the, ch- the pastors he trained, the churches he led, none of uh, John's disciples ever, ever doubted anything that John had to tell him, including the written record of this gospel. So, in any event, there are scholars that have tried to evaluate the expression, the one whom you love is sick, out of John 11 and verse 3, and they've tried to use that as a basis for equating Lazarus of Bethany uh, with the apostle whom Jesus loved. See, and to deny that John, uh, son of Zebedee, uh, was the disciple whom Jesus loved, author of the fourth gospel and, and so forth. They make Lazarus the disciple whom Jesus loved, reclining on his breast, asking him questions, outracing Peter to the tomb, writing the gospel and so forth. It's really, it, you'll, you'll encounter it perhaps if you read some um, technical uh, commentaries on John, uh, but I don't, I don't accept it. And here's another instance. I didn't read John 11:5 yet. In John 11:3, the sister said, "Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick." Well, we got an explanation here in verse 5. Jesus loved, notice, Martha and her sister and Lazarus. All right. So he had a fondness for this entire family, for two uh as far as we know, two unmarried sisters and their brother. All right. And the the three of them uh, Jesus had a, a phileo, a special love for this family, these siblings. No word about their parents, no word about any of their spouses or any of their connections. And it's not just that, that Lazarus is the one and only disciple whom Jesus loved. He's not even the only one that Jesus loved in his family, let alone uh, the only disciple that he loved of the 12 or of the 70 or anything of that nature. So I think the language in verse 5 goes a long way to discounting the uh, theories that people build out of verse 3. That Lazarus is the one whom the Lord loves, and that means he has to be uh, the same guy that's mentioned in all those other places in the gospel. All right. So, that's half an hour to tell you. Different Lazarus. Okay. Not the leper that died and went to Abraham's bosom. Okay. And not the uh, disciple whom Jesus loved that wrote this gospel. I think that's... Clearly, the son of Zebedee, the, uh, the Apostle John. All right, who are Mary and Martha? Point two. Mary and Martha are known from Luke 10. Study we already did in uh, the Prean ministry, episode number nine. Mary and Martha, the two sisters. Martha was the one that was all distracted with the kitchen duties. Mary was the one that said, you know, that kitchen stuff can wait. We got Bible class going on. Mary chose the better part, say, And uh, that episode there, Luke 10, verses 38 through 42. Uh, They're already known to the readers. That's uh, John in the the authorship of this gospel assumes that anybody reading this gospel is already familiar with Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Uh, That those were written decades before John was written. And uh, he even references something that's very well known to the people. Uh, even though it doesn't technically happen until he writes about it in chapter 12. He says, this is the Mary uh, who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair. Whose brother Lazarus was sick. It was that Mary. Okay. Uh, the author John here understands that for, well, at least 40 years, if Matthew and Mark were written in the uh, late 30s, early 40s, 
Some dispute that. Some don't make the Gospel of Matthew not even written until the 50s or 60s. Luke probably wasn't written until the 60s uh, A.D. But John wasn't written until the 80s. All right. So a good generation has gone by where uh, parents have raised their families and children have grown up in Sunday school and believers all over the world have learned Matthew, Mark, and Luke. <laughs> They've learned the the uh, life of Christ. They've learned the uh, plus the oral tradition since so many people that knew Jesus were still alive on the planet and they had their own personal stories to tell. And as we've already seen, uh, how many Marys are there in the in the uh, life of Christ, right? His mother and his mother's sister and the mother uh, wife of Clopas and the, the Magdalene woman that uh, the Romans try to tell you was a prostitute and different things. Um, there's a lot of Marys in Jesus' ministry. And so John does the readers a favor to say, by the way, this is the Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair. And that's uh, what's going to be covered in John 12. And uh, where Judas starts to, uh, right there in that first paragraph, verses 1 through uh, 4 there, when Judas starts to complain about it. So it's that Mary. All right. Mary and Martha are known from other episodes. Uh, this is our first introduction to Lazarus. We didn't realize that uh, they had a brother in that first episode when they were Martha was complaining about uh, Mary uh, slacking off in the uh, the kitchen. Jesus loved these sisters and their brother as well. So the sister sent word to him saying, Lord, behold, pay attention. Now hear this. Uh, the one whom you love is sick. And, <laughs> you know, it's like his mother. They have no wine. All right. What are you saying? <laughs> what is that between me and you, woman? Okay. It's, uh, it seems to be a tradition. At least as recorded by the Apostle John here. Of course, the water to wine is back in chapter 2. Uh, this chapter here. Um, where uh, simply a statement is made. And uh, Jesus is supposed to immediately, um, you know, take action, make everything all right, fix the problem. And uh, he's a prophet anyway, right? So he should know what it is they want, even though they don't ask. Can you provide some more wine, right? Or... Uh, uh, can you come heal Lazarus? See, all they do is just simply, uh, they're not even making the request known. I mean, you're, you're, you're commanded to make your request known. They're not making the request known. They're just citing a, a deficiency. They're not making a request known. Lord, uh, he's sick. All right. But I guess you can imply or you can infer. Okay. The girls are implying he would infer that uh, they, uh, they're urging him to come. Maybe they don't want him. Maybe they want him to come, but they don't want to say because of where Bethany is. It's, it's, it's a rock throw from Jerusalem. It's that close. And if he crosses into Judea again, his life is in danger. And if he gets that close to Jerusalem again, it, it may be that, uh, that, that they're going to arrest him. And so possibly uh, they want to say, please come, but they can't bring themselves to do it. All right. But when Jesus heard this, he said, the sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God. We need to start paying attention. When God assigns a sickness to you, whether it's cancer or heart disease or something stupid, you know, like allergies, whatever it is, serious or stupid or major or life threatening or nuisance or whatever it is, doesn't matter. God's purpose is to glorify his son. God does not give you a test for the sole purpose of asking you to take that test away. <laughs> right? Why is it? It's the first thing we think of. Oh, here's a, I just got a word. So-and-so has uh, leukemia or whatever. Oh, okay. Reflex reaction immediately. My first request is what? God the Father, take away the leukemia. Heal the disease. Uh, So-and-so has cancer. Father, heal that. So-and-so has... Um, Tuberculosis. Father, heal that. Uh, somebody has, whatever, bad breath. Father, God does not give something 
for the purpose of having you say, take it away. We don't do that with other things God gives, right? God gave me a wife 18 years ago. It wasn't my first reaction to say, Father, get rid of that, <laughs> right? Father gave me a wife. What was my first response? It wasn't heal it, take it away. I don't like it. My first response was, thank you, Father. Why is my health test different? Why do we have the reflex reaction, like a doctor thumping your knee with a little hammer thing there? Just a reflex, you know, your, your foot jerks up because of reflex, okay? You know what I'm talking about? Doctors still do that? I haven't seen a doctor in years, but you know, you know what I'm talking about. Tap the thing with a hammer and there goes your foot, okay? Reflex. We, we find out about a health test. Or we find out about any problem. We find out a, um, uh, an employment test. Somebody lost their job yesterday. What's the first thing? Oh, they need another job. And they need it by 2 o'clock this afternoon, <laughs> Right? Problem assigned, it's got to go away as quickly as possible. We want to minimize the amount of time of discomfort, the amount of time in unpleasant circumstances. See, we, we don't say when somebody gets a job, we don't have that same reflex. Father gives somebody a job and we go, Father, take that job away from them. Like we do when we say take the cancer away or take the heart disease away. Or, uh, you know, Lord, he whom you love is sick. And... People get sick. It happens. We're fallen bodies in a fallen world. Sickness happens. It's going to happen again, too. If uh, everybody the Lord healed of whatever sickness was vulnerable to getting sick again, and the three people he brought back to life, guess what? They died again. There's a purpose for these things being assigned. And the purpose is more is not just take them away. I don't like them. There's lessons to be learned in the meantime. And I think about what believers can do. Believers with doctrine. Believers that have faith can be powerful testimonies. Absolutely powerful testimonies. The rain falls on the just and the unjust. Believers and unbelievers both get cancer. But a believer with cancer can bear fruit like Javier did to all those doctors in the VA hospital. Redeem the opportunity to make sure that every doctor, every nurse, every bedpan changer, every, every janitor walking through the room heard about eternal life through faith in Jesus Christ. Unbeliever can't do that. So think about why God assigns what he assigns. And if he assigns you um, a health test, a marriage test, an employment test, a financial test, a, uh, a test. If he, if he gives you something that uh, is viewed in human terms as being uh, not good, change your perspective. God doesn't give you anything that's not good. Every good thing bestowed comes down from above, from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. You may think it's not good, but it's going to work together for good. So thank him for it. Shall we accept good from the Lord and not adversity? Job had to tell Mrs. Job that. He said, adjust to what God's doing. God gave it. Thank him for what God gave. Or God took it away. Thank him for what he took away. So the purpose here is not just simply to... Uh, it's, it's for the glory of God. The sickness is for the glory of God. It's a purpose clause. Why is Lazarus sick? So that God is glorified. Why, uh, why do you have the problems you have? So that God can be glorified when you glorify Jesus Christ. When you keep occupied with His Son. When you keep focused on His Word. When you stay in fellowship. When you continue to use the Holy Spirit. When you testify. When you don't just fly off the handle and go off into some carnality trip. Then God is glorified. That's why He's provided these things for you. Alright, so point three in our outline. You know, Jesus received the human message, but he was already briefed on the divine assignment. He knew all about it. By the time the messenger showed up with uh, the message, if it was verbal or written or whatever, we don't know, but they sent word. Somebody had to actually travel. You know, they didn't have email. Mary and Martha weren't twittering 
the, uh, whatever you call that, the At Lazarus update, okay, they had to either verbally or in written form had to send a message to Jesus, which meant somebody had to, feet had to walk, okay? People feet or animal hoof or something had to go from Bethany to Perea, had to cross the Jordan, had to go to the other region where Jesus was located to give the news. And how long did that take? How long did that take? If you had to carry a message to Georgetown, can't use your vehicle, I hand you a scroll and you have to hand it to somebody in Georgetown, Texas, and you start walking at 11 a.m., what time is that message getting delivered? <laughs> it was up to me. A message didn't get delivered. I'm not walking to Georgetown. All right. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? And so by the time you get word, how old is the news? Well, how long did it take him to get there? Okay. And if you're going to send an answer back, then you've just doubled the length of time it takes. See, communication and transportation were so spoiled. Our century is, is unparalleled in human history for communication and transportation. So um, by the time he gets the human message, he was already briefed on the divine assignment. Already briefed. To me, this is the, the wonderful facet of the role of an Old Testament prophet. This, to me, is the neatest thing. It's not omniscience at work. Don't go there. People, uh, there's commentators that tell you, oh, well, of course, God the Son's omniscient, so he knew all about blah, blah, blah. Wrong. Wrong. What do you tell somebody that tells you that Jesus used omniscience? Do you know the answer? What do you tell them when they say Jesus used omniscience? That's right. He laid aside his privileges. Philippians chapter 2. He did not exercise his omniscience. Not one time. He did not use omniscience because you don't have omniscience. And he was tested even as you are, yet without sin. If he could use some omniscience here and there occasionally to bail him out, that'd be cheating. <laughs> right? Like playing Scrabble with somebody but using a dictionary. That's wrong. I think it's wrong even if you double-check yourself after the fact. You can't tap into omniscience. You're faced with a test right now. I, right now we're praying over this new construction. They laid the foundation yesterday. If you haven't seen I'm going to go get some pictures here. There's a foundation, cement foundation was laid there yesterday. Um, and we don't have the entirety of the funds that's going to pay for that. Which means when it's done, we may end up with a mortgage. We may end up with debt. We don't want to. We're leaving that with the Father. If He wants us to, He will. If He doesn't, He won't. That's in the Father's hands. I don't know what's going to pay for that. I do know, though, that if we start hitting Jimmy Carter uh, interest rates, we don't want a mortgage. I know that for a fact. All right. Am I the youngest guy in this room? I'm not. Okay. The rest of you remember Jimmy Carter, and you remember those interest rates, and you remember what uh, the 1970s were all about. Um. But what I'm saying is, I don't know. I can't just tap into omniscience. If I could, it would make all of these tests a whole lot easier. Okay? Or if I could tap into some omnipotence. I'd, I'd pass a lot of tests if I was using omnipotence. Okay? Jesus did not use omnipotence. Not one miracle was omnipotence at work. Every miracle was a work of the Holy Spirit's power that God the Father assigned to an Old Testament prophet to accomplish. He did miracles like Moses, Elijah, all the Old Testament prophets. He knew things like Moses and Elijah only as they were revealed to him through prophetic revelation, not through omniscience, not at all through omniscience. Okay, and that's what we see here. This sickness is not to end in death. How does he know that? Because God, the father already briefed him, already briefed him as a prophet, not as an omniscient son of God. Okay, um, let me give you one example, and I don't know where it is, but I'll find it. All right, it's in 1 Samuel, so you can start turning there. And um, it's early on when they're demanding a king. Looks to be like about chapter 9. Yes, chapter 8 and chapter 9. Chapter 8, they're demanding a king. And then uh, 
the Lord tells Samuel, relax about it. They haven't rejected you. They've rejected uh, me. And uh, Samuel just stays faithful here to the Lord. And what I find is interesting here is that um, Saul's father, Kish, here loses uh, some donkeys. And he sends Saul out to go find the donkeys. And so in chapter 9, Saul's out there looking for the donkeys. And he can't find the donkeys anywhere. Okay? They're just lost. Like trying to keep track of teenagers. Where are they now? I don't know. And, um, and, and even worse, as soon as those donkeys get driver's license, you never know where they're going to be. Teenagers, not donkeys. Teenagers get driver's license. You don't know where they're going to be. All right. Well, what happens here, though, is finally he says, I can't find these things. Let me. Um, there's a prophet over here. There's a man of God over here. Uh, I can inquire of the Lord and not find out the mysteries of the universe or not learn the things of Scripture or not, you know, discover how to be saved. I can inquire this man of God to uh, as a lost and found department to uh, help me find my father's lost donkeys. <laughs> All right. Now, notice the whole point of this illustration comes in chapter nine, verse 15. All right. A day before Saul's coming. This is what we would call a heads up. Okay. A day before Saul shows up. The Lord had revealed this to Samuel. It's because Samuel's omniscient. No, he's a prophet. He's a faithful prophet. He's obedient. And so God gives him a heads up. He gives him a briefing a day ahead of time. He says about this time tomorrow. And he does so with precision. He, he makes the revelation at the same time that it's going to be the next day. So they're synchronized on the timing of it. Just in case uh, he might get confused, there might be more than one people coming to him looking for lost donkeys tomorrow. Uh, it's the one coming to you at this time of day tomorrow. A man from the land of Benjamin. I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. And he will deliver my people from the hand of the Philistines. For I have regarded my people because their cry has come to me. And then, just in case there was any question, the very next day when, Samuel, uh, when Saul shows up, Samuel saw Saul, the Lord said to him, Behold, the man of whom I spoke to you. <laughs> you see how pinpoint this is? You know? It's like with John the Baptist and Jesus. Uh, John the Baptist knew that Christ is coming. Christ is coming. It's the one that, uh, that you see the Holy Spirit descending as a dove. He's coming. He's coming. He's coming. And then Jesus shows up. And what happens? The Holy Spirit shows up as a dove. And that's not enough for the Father. The Father says, Behold, this is the one I was telling you. The heavens are open and a voice out of heaven says, Behold, my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. So there's no question here. This is, uh, this is great. This is exactly how... Um, the prophets operated. So keep this in mind as we go through Joel and Jonah and, and uh, different things. The prophets sometimes didn't like it. Jonah, of course, got his morning briefing and ran for Tarshish. Uh, but Samuel received his briefing. Okay, tomorrow. Benjamin guy showing up looking for donkey. Make him king. Got it. All right. But you know it's a test. You know it's a test. Because what if uh, Samuel had something against Benjamin? Samuel might have had some prejudice. Samuel might have said, I'm not putting a crown on a Benjamite head. Are you kidding me? Scepter belongs to Judah. Why would I put a crown on Benjamin's head? It's a volitional test for the prophet a day ahead of time. And he passes that test a day ahead of time. Now he can bear fruit the next day. And so this is great. Um, Saul, or Samuel, no, Saul is still uh, lost and confused. And he's going door to door saying, you know, where can I find the seer? Uh, he approached Samuel in the gate. Didn't even know it's Samuel. And walks up to him and says, I'm looking for a guy named Samuel. <laughs> Please tell me where, where the seer's house is. You know, like, like a guy coming in here. We've had it before and I meet him in the hallway and, and they say, uh, could you tell me where I can meet the pastor? Well, if I want to be ornery, I'll take him over to Doug and say, here's our pastor. Usually I have to say, no, I'm, I'm the pastor. Well, here he walks up to Samuel and he wants to know where the seer's house is. <laughs> and Samuel says, I'm way ahead of you. I'm three steps ahead of you. I'm about five steps ahead of you. Samuel answers Saul and said, I'm the, I'm the seer. Go up before me to the high place, for you shall eat with me today. I've been waiting for you. I've got a meal ready. Uh, and in the morning, 
In fact, you're going to spend the night. We have a lot to talk about tonight. A long Bible class. In the morning, I will let you go, and I will tell you all that is on your mind. Oh, and by the way, as for those donkeys which were lost three days ago, when did Samuel say, when did Saul say anything about donkeys, right? He didn't say anything about donkeys. As for the donkeys which were lost three days ago, don't, don't worry about them. They already went back home. They've already been found. Hmm. And for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Is it not for you and all your father's household? And Saul replied, Am I not of Benjamin, the smallest of the tribes of Israel, my family the least of all the families of the tribe of Benjamin? Why then do you speak to me in this way? So he's got an opportunity here. Anyway, there's a, uh, a larger context on this. But um, the point being, you look at that and you say, Okay, is this unusual or usual? Is this abnormal or normal? Is this a day in the life of an Old Testament prophet? And I think when you see Samuel's example, you see Balaam's example, uh, you see Jonah's example, uh, you see Abraham's example when the Lord came and, and discussed with Abraham what was going to happen to Sodom. I think you see the pattern again and again and again and again where these Old Testament prophets got daily briefings from the Lord. About this time tomorrow. So here's the, here's the picture now. Jesus and his disciples, they're out there, they're ministering in Perea, they're doing their things there. And then uh, revelation comes to Jesus then. And the father says to his son, he says, about this time tomorrow, you're going to get word from Mary and Martha and Bethany that their brother Lazarus is sick. And here's what you're going to do. You're not going to leave right away. You're going to stay two days where you are in Perea. You're going to finally then delay two days later. You're going to go back to Bethany. You're going to find that you're too late. He's already dead. He's in the ground. He's been in the ground four days by the time you get there. People are all going to be boohooing. Okay. And you're going to raise him from the dead. It's going to be your third and final resuscitation miracle. And you're going to deliver an I am message while you're there. The Anastasis and Zoe resurrection and life I am message you're going to deliver while you're there. And so he gets this briefing all the way ahead of time. And then so here it comes the next day. Here comes the letter. And oh, Lazarus is sick. And the Lord has an opportunity now to tell the disciples. He said, this sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the son of God may be glorified by it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he had heard he was sick. He then stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Right? You know, you heard that uh, something was going on. And so what do you do? You delay. Okay? Oh, my goodness. Uh, my wife has a flat tire on 183. What am I going to do? Well, I'll hang out for five or six more hours. I'll get there later on tonight. Well, I'm not going to do that. Okay? But if I was an Old Testament prophet and I'd already been given the heads up the day before, that tells me that, um, you know, about this time tomorrow, uh, your wife's going to be broken down on the highway. Uh, but don't worry about it because I'm putting her there at that time. And when the tow truck arrives, uh, there's going to be an unbeliever that uh, that your wife is going to lead to Christ. See, so don't go running off all while to hurry up and get there and try to change your flat or do whatever you're going to do. You'll just get in the way. Uh, just stay where you are, okay? Go to Pluckers, get some lunch or whatever. Stay away because your wife is going to lead this tow truck driver to Christ. That becomes then my volitional test. I say, okay, sounds great. I'll be obedient. Don't have to twist my arm to go get lunch at Pluckers or to not change a flat tire, okay? You bet. All right? So... It, it seems like a quirk. It seems he heard that he was sick, so he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. But it's beautiful. It's absolutely beautiful. And it helps us, too, in our microwave 21st century American culture. Not everything has to be done today. In fact, there are some things that can't be done today. And if you try to rush them, it's too soon. So back off. Wait. Wait. See what God's going to do. You know, you know, I might imagine the Israelites all impatient and say, well, let's just swim the Red Sea. <laughs> Moses, slow down, stop, wait, watch. Stand fast and watch the salvation of the Lord. When we stop getting in such a hurry, we can slow down and watch what God does as his plan unfolds. 
All right. Well, got a good jump on it. That's a pretty good start. We, um, Lord willing, rapture pending, we'll uh, come back to this. Uh, and hopefully we'll get some better detail. I think Doubting Thomas gets a bum rap here. I think Thomas called Didymus in verse 16 when he says, Let us go also that we may die with him. I think that's a positive statement. I don't think it's Doubting Thomas at work. Later on when he's doubting the resurrection, then that's clearly lack of faith, doubt in operation. This, though... I wonder sometimes if, we, uh, if, we, if we're too hard on Thomas. You could read that as a positive statement. The other 11 are all saying, let's not go, let's not go, let's not go. And Thomas says, okay, let's go. If we die, we die. Let's go do it. And uh, I think you can view verse uh, 16 as a positive statement of faith. Unless you're trapped into thinking that, well, he's doubting Thomas after all. He, he never says anything right. Um, then I think you're unfairly taking a later chapter, reading it back into this chapter, and not giving uh, this verse here its own fair reading. So we'll, uh, we'll spotlight that next week as well. Thank you, Father, for today. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for the foundation laid yesterday, Father. I haven't seen it yet, but uh, I've heard about it. Now thank you for it. We uh, just commit all things into your hands, and we praise you in Christ's name. Amen.